We have a massive bureaucracy in our government in this country, and so it can be difficult to keep track of all of the many federal agencies that exist. But among those, I suspect that one of the least known agencies is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. I don't know how many of you or if any of you are familiar with that agency, but their mission actually goes back to a mandate that was laid out in the Articles of Confederation to, quote, fix the standards of weights and measures throughout the United States. Now, the Constitution gave that power to Congress, which ultimately created the Bureau of Standards. That's what they originally called it, and that was the predecessor to this agency. But part of their job is to publish a guide that's known as Handbook 44, which provides, quote, specifications, tolerances, and other technical requirements for weighing and measuring devices. So, for instance... They possess several national standard kilograms, and they calibrate these periodically against the international prototype kilogram. The international prototype kilogram is this little block of metal. It's a platinum-iridium alloy that's located in France. It was created in 1889, and essentially they said, this is a kilogram. <laughs> and they've been guarding it and maintaining it ever since then. And other nations measure their kilograms against that one. And if you've ever wondered, how do we know how much a kilogram is? Well, that's how. The point is, with this and with other measurements, there are exacting standards that they have to measure up to. Our word this week is righteousness. The English term righteousness means behavior that is morally justifiable or right. That means that it measures up to an accepted standard of morality, of behavior, of virtue, of uprightness. But in particular, we're talking here about the divine standard, God's standard. And that's important for us to keep in mind. When we're talking about righteousness, this isn't just some abstract concept of goodness. We're talking here about God's standard. It's right standing and right behavior as it relates to God. So what about the biblical content of this word? Uh, what can we learn about righteousness, just the concept itself from Scripture? Well, in the Old Testament, the word that's translated righteousness is the Hebrew word tzedek. And this involves primarily fulfilling the demands in a relationship. Now, this could be any sort of relationship. Uh, sometimes it's used in terms of human relationships. But more often than not, primarily in the Old Testament, this refers to human beings' relationship with God. That's where righteousness is found. Righteousness is justice in the context of this relationship. It's keeping up your part of the covenant relationship here. And when a person fulfills their obligations in the relationship, they're said to be righteous. There are 
two fields of thought in particular that shape and that inform this Old Testament concept. And the first one is the law court. In the Hebrew legal system, there wasn't any sort of public prosecutor. You know, there was no district attorney that handled cases. It was all handled between private citizens. You always had a plaintiff and you had a defendant. And righteousness was the declaration by the court that one of these two parties was in the right. The one who had proved their case or won their case was declared to be righteous. Of course, when we're talking about the Jewish legal system, what's the standard, the Jewish law, that's the stipulations of God's covenant. And so it's tied up with this idea of covenant. It came to acquire this sense of behavior that conforms to God's covenant. And of course, in addition to that, a judge must be righteous, right? A judge has to apply the law fairly and impartially. He has to make sure that he's true to that law or to that covenant. And so we have a, a bleeding into this second field that's important, and that is the idea of covenant. And that's because for Jews, their law is their covenant charter. It's their document that spells out their obligations in their relationship with God. And in fact, in the Old Testament, God is often pictured as a judge or as a king, someone who's rendering a judgment here. And we have frequently the law court that's pictured. Sometimes Israel's the plaintiff. That is, they're bringing charges against their enemies and they're wanting God as their judge to, to vindicate them. Sometimes Israel's presented as the defendant. That is, they're accused of violating the stipulations of the covenant. And so they stand condemned in some sense. But God's righteousness is what ensures that whatever the case, deliverance is always going to come for them. And that's because you can trust that God, because he's righteous, that is because he always keeps the terms of the covenant relationship, he's going to deliver them. God's righteous. He keeps up his end of the bargain, and you can trust that. He's seen as the source of righteousness. He always keeps covenant with Israel. And of course, ultimately, he promised to establish a new covenant. And that brings us to the New Testament where we should keep in mind these two settings, the law court and the covenant. Those inform the meaning of righteousness in the New Testament too. The Greek word that's translated as righteousness is dikaiosune. Uh, and once again here, this relational idea is what's paramount. So that same aspect that was important in the Old Testament, relationship, that carries over into the New Testament too. Those who are righteous, essentially, are those who belong to God's covenant people. That is, those who are in a relationship with God are regarded as righteous. God's righteousness is shown in Christ in establishing a new covenant and creating a new covenant people in him. But remember, there's also this legal background, and here's where we run into a little bit of a, a problem or our understanding's a little bit deficient, at least in English. The root word that's translated as 
righteous, or righteousness, is also translated as just and justify and justification. That is, those are the same Greek concepts, but they're translated differently into English depending on how they're used. And you can probably check this in your own Bible. Whatever translation you use, English translations tend to prefer justify for the verb, and they tend to prefer righteousness for the noun. But it's the same root. And I'm not sure we always see how those words are connected, and that's unfortunate because these terms or these fields of terms, actually, are all coming here from the same root. Now, justification is a legal term. To be justified means that you've been declared to be righteous. You're in the right in your case. That's what we're talking about here. And unfortunately, we fail to see that connection, as I said. Now, I don't want to get too far into that because if you've peeked ahead in your table of contents in your book, we're going to talk about justification some months on down the line, and we'll get into more of this then. But when I talk about the real problem here, you know, I've mentioned there's a little bit of a problem. Scripture tells us that true, perfect righteousness is unattainable for us. We can't do it. We can't reach it. And you probably saw this in your reading this week. One passage that was mentioned, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Or our text that Tristan read a few moments ago. There's none righteous. No, not one. And that's just scratching the surface. That idea is drilled into us over and over and over again. So we're told on the one hand that we can't be perfectly righteous. And yet, on the other hand, we're also told that in Christ, we are declared to be righteous. Remember, if we're justified, these terms are related. If we're justified in Christ, that means that God declares us to be righteous. Uh, He himself fulfilled the righteousness of God. Think about a passage, uh, Matthew chapter 3. When he goes down at the very beginning of his ministry, he goes down to the Jordan, he asks John the Baptist to baptize him, and John doesn't want to do it. He says, I, you should be the one baptizing me. You know, what are you doing here? And Jesus says, suffer it to be so. It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And that's at the beginning of his ministry, but of course we know he keeps that up throughout his life. The point is, his actions were obedient to God. They pleased God. He kept God's will, and thus they were righteous in God's sight. Now, we can't be perfectly righteous, but through him, through our faith in him, we're declared to be righteous. Uh, that's, well, that's a big part of Paul's point throughout all of Romans, but you look at chapter 4. In chapter 4, he talks about the fact that Abraham through his faith, his faith was reckoned to him or accounted to him as righteousness. That is not that Abraham was righteous, but because he trusted God, he believed God, that faith was counted to him as if he were righteous. And the whole point he makes throughout chapter 4, you get to the end of the chapter, and it is that we are justified, that is, we're declared to be righteous, in just that same way that Abraham was. We have faith in Jesus, well, then God declares us to be righteous too. So 
we're not righteous in ourselves, and yet in Christ we are treated, we're counted just as if we are righteous. And that's typically referred to, the technical term for that is imputed righteousness. And if you did your reading this week, you ran across that term. You might not have known what that meant exactly because that's not something that we talk about too often. But when we talk about Jesus' righteousness counted to us as if we are ourselves righteous, that's imputed righteousness. So we're told we can't be righteous, yet in Christ we're declared to be righteous on account of his righteousness. And yet, at the same time, we are told, commanded in fact, to pursue righteousness. A number of passages teach that. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, to pursue righteousness. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. Jesus himself, in a passage we all know, Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So you see, put all this together, and we're told to seek after something that we are also told we cannot obtain alone. Now there's a sort of paradox there. There's a, a tension there that we're not always comfortable with, and we might talk about this some when we talk about justification, but if you get into the long history of theological disputes, uh, there's a dispute here between this imputed righteousness and what is called infused righteousness. That is, the teaching of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages was this uh, salvation where it's synergistic. You cooperate with God. So he infuses you with Jesus' righteousness, and then you have a real righteousness of your own, and you're supposed to grow that and live that out yourself through the works that you do. And Luther and some others reacted against that, and they said, no, we come to God empty-handed. We don't do anything of ourselves. We're just clothed in Christ's righteousness. He imputes it to us. He counts it to us. And so there's this long dispute, you know, is Christ righteous imputed to us, or are we really infused with his righteousness? And I, I bring all that up just so we kind of understand what that term means that you found in your reading. We understand this background of righteousness. But also to say, I think that this whole argument, just like so many things in theology, is really just a, a bit of a, a false dichotomy. That is, both of these things are, in a sense, true. Jesus' righteousness is counted to us. It's imputed to us. But that righteousness that's counted to us is a real righteousness. That is, that pardoned sinner isn't just pardoned because of Jesus. He really is pardoned. We really are forgiven. We really are counted as righteous. When we are pardoned, we not only can, but we must go out and strive then to live righteous lives ourselves. And see, I think part of the problem here is that historically this has always been talked about in terms of the law court. That is the rendering of the verdict. You're declared to be righteous, not guilty in a sense, or pardoned, even though you're not. But remember there's that other background, that covenant background. And that's what's helpful here to try to really understand this. To be righteous is to be declared to be part of God's covenant people. Remember, this word is really not primarily about legal relationships. It's about relationships 
in themselves. Righteousness means more or less covenant membership. It means to be part of God's people. Now, we know that if we're part of God's people, that carries with it certain ethical responsibilities, right? That is, if you're God's man or you're God's woman, he expects you to behave in a certain way. And that's where this idea of behavioral norms intertwines with what it means to be righteous. God's covenant people are expected to live in a particular way. And just here, we're stepping on some other topics. Next week, we're going to talk about holiness, and I feel like we're kind of getting into that. And so with all that said, what I really want us to take home tonight and what I want us to to think about here in the last couple of minutes is the pursuit of righteousness. Jesus says in a passage that we're all familiar with, the Beatitudes that begin the Sermon on the Mount, one of those Beatitudes says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied, or they will be filled. So I don't want us to leave here tonight just focusing on these technical issues or get lost in this idea of different forms of righteousness because we're not talking tonight primarily about the righteousness of God or the righteousness that God gives us in Jesus or imputed or infused righteousness or or whatever else we want to bring up. We're talking here, remember in this unit, about Christian character. We're talking here about living righteous lives. And so I want us to ask ourselves as we leave here tonight, do we hunger for righteousness? Do we thirst for it, for living God's kind of life? Do we have that appetite for it? Do we yearn for it? Do we have a real appetite for righteousness? You know, a good appetite is a real blessing. And I'm not sure if we ever fully appreciate that until we lose that appetite for some reason, typically through sickness or something like that. But a good appetite is a mark of life, for one thing. It's perfectly natural to hunger and to thirst. And that's not only true for humans, that's a mark of anything that's alive, right? Animals, you go outside, the the grass, the trees, they all hunger and they thirst. Living things hunger. Only the dead don't have a hunger. But it's not only a mark of life, it's a mark of a healthful life. If you go to the doctor because you're not feeling well for some reason and he starts to try to ask you questions, probably one of the first things he's going to ask you about is how's your appetite? Any changes in your eating, drinking habits? Uh, Just this morning, for example, uh, we mentioned in our announcements that Brother Taylor's mother has not been doing well. She's been in the hospital, and he gave a report on her before we started Bible class, and he said that this morning she seemed to be doing better, and one of the things he singled out was that she ate some malto meal and she drank some Ensure, I believe is what he said. He mentioned that because that was a marker that she seems to be doing somewhat better because our appetite is tied to our health, and if you lose that appetite, well, that's a red flag. We know that that means something is probably wrong. A good appetite also, thirdly, produces growth. You think about a a baby. A baby is just a a bundle of hunger and of thirst, and it might be crying out and doesn't really know necessarily what it's crying for, but when it gets it, it knows that that's what it wanted. 
And of course, if it doesn't get that, then everyone else in the house knows that it, it needs it. Just as long as it maintains that appetite, it will grow. But if it loses that appetite, well, then it's not going to grow right. It's never going to reach that physical potential that it could have had. And that's not just true for, for babies. That's true for all of us. You need to fuel your body. You need to eat. You need to drink in order to keep your body's engine running. You can't go without that any more than your car can run without gasoline. Finally, a good appetite is a blessing simply because of the enjoyment we get out of taking in that nourishment. You might think about your mom's cooking. And if your mom was a good cook, you can probably think about some things in particular, some meals, some foods in particular that you're remembering. Now, my mom is a good cook, and there are some things that she makes that are excellent, still are. I love to eat them to this day. But there are some things that maybe aren't quite as good as I remembered when I was a kid. You know, maybe I can make them as well, or Abby can, or I've had them in a restaurant that are just as good. And the point of that is, I'm not sure that it was better when we were younger so much as it is we had bigger appetites. And that makes a big difference. Hunger is the best sauce, as a proverb that's come from many countries says. And, you know, when you're 13 years old and have that insatiable appetite, man, everything tastes good. A good appetite is indispensable to enjoying a meal. But on the other hand, if you're not really that hungry, if you don't have that big appetite, well, it's going to be a lot harder to enjoy what you're eating. See, all of these big principles are important because we recognize we hunger for things other than food. We have to have bread, but we can't live by bread alone, as Jesus himself said. And that's what separates us from other animals. You know, animals get hungry. We mentioned that already. Uh, we have more than one cat, but we have one cat in particular that has a powerful hunger. She would probably just eat and eat and eat if you let her. And if she thinks it's time to be fed and you haven't fed her, she will yell at you until you do meow, 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 nonstop until you do feed her. But, you know, if she were here tonight, she wouldn't get anything out of my sermon <laughs> because she doesn't have a, a hunger in that sense. She has that physical hunger, but she doesn't have that hunger that we have as humans. Our other hungers, our other needs are what separate us from animals. Those higher yearnings, these are part of our human makeup. We want to know more. We hunger after knowledge. Uh, we want to go and, and see new places and explore. We hunger after new experiences. Uh, we want to, to do new things. We want to accomplish tasks. We have a, a hunger after uh, being successful or proficient in things like that. And above all else, God has placed within us this natural hunger, this insatiable desire for him. We sing a song about that that's taken right out of the Psalms. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you, the psalmist says. That is a universal language right there. God has placed that hunger within each and every person on this earth. And these spiritual hungers, the things that we said about the physical ones, it, it holds true for the, the spiritual too. That is, a sp 
Spiritual hunger is a sign of life. If we don't have it, that means that we're dead. A spiritual hunger is a sign of a healthy life, and if we don't have it right, well, that means that we're unhealthy. A spiritual hunger is a sign that we're growing, and if we don't have it, well, then we're not growing. We're maintaining at best. A spiritual hunger is something that is a blessing in itself. It's enjoyable. And if we don't have that, well, that means that our priorities are probably out of whack. We're not enjoying the way that we're being nourished here. And the tragedy in this world is that there's a lot of people out there who don't really know what they're hungry for. They have that deep yearning within them, and they don't know that God is what can fill it. And so they try to fill it with any and every vain thing there in this world, and they walk away still unsatisfied, this empty place in the pit of their stomachs. They're eating junk food instead of being nourished the way that God intended them. You think about how many people there are that we know of who have absolutely no appetite for things that are spiritual. They don't have any interest in a worship service at all, uh, the most powerful sermon ever preached would only bore them. The idea of worship repels them. Uh, The Bible's a dead book to them. All these great hymns that have nourished the church in some cases for centuries, that leaves them dull and it leaves them listless. We talked about the importance of food and it's a pitiful thing when someone loses their appetite for their daily bread. But how much more when someone loses their appetite for the bread of life. And that's what I really want us to take home and to think about this evening. The question is, do we have this insatiable appetite for righteousness? Jesus says, if we do, we're blessed. Why? Well, for one thing, I think there's a sense in which you can't be hungering and thirsting after righteousness unless you already have it to some extent. That is, you have some measure of that, some taste of that. You're part of God's covenant people, or else you wouldn't be interested in that. But more than that, he says, blessed are you, for you will be filled. You'll be satisfied. There's that paradox again. We can't, we're told to pursue it. We can't obtain it in ourselves, but he promises that in him, we'll get it. We'll be filled up. We'll have that yearning for righteousness within us satisfied. We'll be satisfied now, and we'll be satisfied eternally. So I want you to ask yourself this evening, do you hunger, do you thirst after righteousness? Is it insatiable? Is it just eating you up how much you need? And if not, then maybe you need to make changes in your life this evening. If that's the case, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.